Welcome to Historically Thinking, a program devoted to all kinds of historical knowledge and to the ways that we achieve it. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Our website is historicallythinking.org, where you can subscribe, find more information about our guests, links, and related readings. Our email address is mail at historicallythinking.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today on Historically Thinking is Joe Davis. He is a research professor, is that right, of sociology at the University of Virginia. And today um, we're going to uh, discuss higher education rather than history. So this is uh, part of the sort of ongoing series that we have on the podcast, which could be called Higher Education, a Guide for the Perplexed. So Joe, thank you for hopefully deperplexing us, <laughs> if not actually enlightening us. <laughs> Complexifying. Complex- please don't. We, uh, when we, uh, to have a sociologist, I don't know, you, you know, you've heard Jackson Lear say oftentimes that the problem with historians will never be on, um, give a TED Talk because our favorite verb is complicate, to complicate. Yeah, so yeah. hopefully you won't be complexifying things. So we want to talk about those dang kids uh, today. And um, it's been on my mind ever since, well, ever since you start teaching, uh, students sh- should probably be on your mind. I heard you give this talk, a version of a talk about four years ago um, on uh, very early on in your thinking about, or earlier on in your thinking about this, I think, about the problem with kids these days. And um, it resonated with me. It, um, I've noticed that uh, there's a sort of exterior, outside the universities, uh, people say, well, kids are just too sensitive. There's the snowflake thing. Within the universities, my colleagues might say that students are being you know, oppressed by the neoliberal machine of, of getting jobs, and that's why we don't have history majors or something like that. Yours is the most nuanced approach. So um, I wanted to discuss it at, at great length. You said in one paper that you've written on this, you discuss the idea that the only th- problem with students is thinking. Could you describe that sort of analysis and why you think that's invalid? Why is why are things why isn't it just about thinking? The idea and I, this um, is a common idea that that. The problem is some kind of faulty thinking. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And that's the premise of cognitive behavioral therapy. So, and since cognitive behavioral therapy is the solution, apparently, to the problem, you have to define the problem as a problem of faulty thinking. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, that kids, for instance, um, are somehow misreading their environment. Uh, I recall a book, it was written by the psychologist or psychiatrist who is head of the student counseling service at Harvard. He has a book published some years ago. um, And, you know, he said that we have to get the kids to realize that, um, that getting a bad grade, you know, they, they somehow have this catastrophic thinking that getting a bad grade means that they're not, um, you know, that they're going to fail in life or something like mm-hmm. that. We have to convince them that that's just not true. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've tried and, that, and that, and that does not work. And, um, well, and, and not that you simply. know, I was both kind of curious, like, 
um, the, the problems of college students are not, um, you know, in, in, in my interviews and so on, have centered around kind of problems with attention deficit, sure. concentrating, being motivated in school, mm -hmm. um, and so on, problems of sadness or depression um, or loneliness mm -hmm. or, or anxiety of various kinds, social anxiety, maybe particularly, but a kind of general anxiety about about their experience and so on, and and, um, uh, and there's been an explosion of that, and um, the the faulty thinking is like, well, what explains yeah. what explains the faulty? Why is it all of a sudden? Yeah, why why is we suddenly it, have an outbreak? Of it has thinking? to be thought of as all of a sudden. I mean, the you mean like in terms of the depression statistics? Well, or? yeah, the the numbers of this are rising quite dramatically. Yeah. Um, so last year I went to a conference put on by the American College Health Association. And they do these um, twice a year big surveys of college mm -hmm. students. They're around health, but that includes certainly all areas of mental health um, and so on. And so they had a conference, and it was about kind of the, the mental health crisis on campus. And they had some college presidents there and some people from the kind of counseling and psychological mm -hmm. services mm -hmm. divisions of these schools. And um, and it was it was a mixture of big and big and little schools, um, and so on. And, and particularly the the presidents of these several of these institute of these relatively small institutions and one chancellor of a bigger system were like you know there was this is bankrupting us. What what is happening? Really? Um, you know, one school, I forget which one now, a relatively small school had had one counselor mm -hmm. for the whole school. Yeah, yeah. Ten years ago, and now it has ten. Yeah. They've been adding them one per year. Yeah. Big school, Ohio State, there was a guy there from Ohio State, said they added 13 positions last year. How big, is, how big is our counseling system? Well, yeah. it, 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 well yeah. Ohio State must be massive. Yeah, it's 50,000 or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it's yeah, got it, it's 50, thousands. Because even based on if, if there was just the presentation of mental illness that you'd expect based on the rest of the population, it would still be huge. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But this was 13 new positions in a single year. Yeah, in a single year. To a, to a system that's been growing dramatically yeah, yeah. since really the late 90s. Everybody, yeah. uh, Yale, they, they can't hire people fast enough. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, at least a quarter of the student body is using these. Yes. They also do a lot of medicine management mm -hmm. because a lot of kids come to school now already on a medication for, for some yeah. kind of psychiatric problem. So... It seemed to me this is a very pervasive phenomena um, that that faulty thinking mm -hmm. um, uh, seemed to me inadequate to explain. Um, plus, um, if you asked what's the inadequate thinking, it wasn't clear to me that the students actually get it wrong. Mm -hmm. uh, so, for instance, if you... Uh, that, that is, it seemed to me the students are actually responding to real things in their environment, mm -hmm. right? So the, com the competition, for instance, to get into certain kinds of elite institutions, that competition is quite real, mm -hmm. right? And if you feel like you're failing because you're not, you know, getting adequate grades or something like that, you're not, you're not mistaken that mm -hmm. that's mm -hmm. actually what's at stake. You're, you're, that seems to me quite, quite accurate. Right? That is what's at stake. And so the fact that you might feel very anxious about it, uh, for instance, or that you, um, uh, or even the kind of norms on a somewhat different plane, the kind of norms, there was a, 
a study by at Duke. It was like a women's, some women's studies, not a department, but some thing they did there in 2004 or something like that. That was a look, was it kind of consideration of, of the kind of pressures that students were experiencing there, the female students in this case. Um, and anyway, the, one of the students used this phrase, effortlessly perfect, yeah. to describe <laughs> what a Duke woman was supposed to be like. Effortlessly, repeat that, effortlessly perfect. Effortlessly perfect. It's um, a very difficult bill to... to and Yeah, and, and so, but again, that norm isn't, they're not making it up. No. I mean, she's not mistaken that that's the norm, yeah. right? University of Virginia, when I talk with students there, we, we go through these things, we read some pieces like that, and then we talk about what, what the norm is. You know, by norm, I mean, what, what's the kind of implicit standard that you should be living up to, mm-hmm. right? It would be someone who is good-looking, mm-hmm. very smart, fit and athletic, yes. very socially uh, Competent ease. and adept. The, I've, got the the, oppo- I've got the list. Right? The opposite of, excuse me, yes, the opposite of awkward. You know, yeah. in some ways you, you learn what the norm is by what you're not supposed yeah, to be. Yeah, yeah. So being awkward. Very bad. Is very bad. Yeah. Exactly. And, and literally, I've, I've interviewed students who are four of the five, but are on a drug because they're not all five. And it's not just you. So it's not just enough so, that you be really smart. Yeah. Right, but you all you have to be these other things too. Yeah, and but but the students aren't mistaken that that's what the norm is. We also right? should add self-disciplined, accomplished, and happy. And happy, yes. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> and as you say, uh, th- that could be expanded that list. Yeah, but those are those are like the norms of what you refer to as meritocratic selfhood. Yeah, yeah. So what what does that mean? Meritocratic. Mer- meritocratic selfhood. Well, it's just, I got the idea from the notion of that we live in a meritocracy sure. so that each person, the positions that we're taking in society are the ones that we merit, right? So mm-hmm. we're, we find our place in society uh, according to our skills and abilities. And, and we're not, and it's not, the idea of a meritocracy is it's not based on other kinds of extrinsic factors, mm-hmm. your gender, your skin color, your family's last name, mm-hmm. all those sort of the, the statuses are achieved rather than ascribed to you. Mm-hmm. Um, so then each person can go out in the world and rise to the level of their, and, and their capability. And so it's... And that's why these students aren't wrong, because they are having to achieve these markers or to achieve these... What, what, I don't know what to call it, those things as part of developing their self. Is that, is that what you're saying? Well, yeah, and, and if you, um, I, I, I meant by that they weren't wrong in the sense that that if the norm is to be good looking, right, and fit, mm-hmm. and you're not, you're overweight, yeah, then you're not you're not mistaken that the norm is to be right. And if you feel bad that you're not meeting the norm. Right, you you don't have fault. It's not a mistake in thinking. <laughs> that really is the norm. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so it, it seemed to me that kind of the mistake in thinking was that that people were evaluating themselves right wrongly, right? Um, that somehow they actually didn't understand what the norms were. 
but it does seem to me that kids are keenly aware of what the norms are, um, and they feel like they're falling short, um, and and that's the source of the anxiety, um, and so on for a lot of students is they're not measuring up, they're not living up to their potential, they're not demonstrating, you know, in some ways their fitness for elite status. But I. To, let me quote from here. This is from your 2014 paper. Um, let's address that question of not measuring up to elite status with the situation of a woman, a sophomore called Liz. You remember, uh, perhaps you remember Liz. She's a sophomore at a well-respected university. She has solid grades. She's co-editor of the literary magazine on campus. She volunteers frequently as an ESL tutor. She gets along well with her parents and older brother, which is, that, by the way, is an interesting parenthetical thing. It's amazing to me how many students these days either claim or actually seem to be getting along well with their parents. I don't know if that's demonstrably better than it used to be or not, but uh, their family is comfortably well-to-do. Okay, She's achieved success, it would seem, mm-hmm. but she is miserable and angry. She describes herself as pathetic, a loser, and says her life sucks. She thinks she's probably suffering from depression, though she has never sought treatment. What's going on here? I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, we could we could have this Liz. <laughs> well, she. It seems to me that Liz could be Al. It could be lots of other people. You have the advantage of having. Yeah, you got the paper in front of me. I wrote that a long time ago. I know, but you've encountered lots of people like this. I mean, Liz could. Fit. I think Liz was it was a leadership issue, yeah, right? It, that she wasn't taking leadership, mm-hmm. um, and and. And she was. She felt like she was really missing opportunities that she should be taking. Mm-hmm. She should be maximizing her resume in certain ways that she wasn't. If I remember that particular student. Well, I mean, she. But there are lots of other people with different names that are almost uh, with slightly different things on their curricular CV or their resume, and yet feel the same way. Yeah. Right. Right. And what, what, so that's that. That's what these. They're so successful, and yet they feel there's something wrong with me. Right, right. Well, um, it, it maybe a couple of different dynamics. Um, I, I think in her case, um, that she was there's there's so there's a, a norm to kind of optimize yourself. Right. Um, that is to make use of your opportunities. Um, and again, the, the, I mentioned earlier the language of potential. Mm-hmm. Um, I've come to think that's a really destructive language. Mm. Um, you mean the could, language that I have potential to be, yeah, or live up to you, you live know, up to your parents potential. would often say to their child, they wouldn't tell them, you know, I want you to be a doctor or a lawyer or something specific like that. That's old, too old school. <laughs> yeah, and yeah. it feels like you're coercing. Them. Oh, yeah. No one wants to coerce anyone. So being softer, we say live up to your potential. Right, but it turns out that's actually a much more difficult huh. thing to deal with. It's a really interesting um, idea. That, you know, in fact, student, the small number of students I've ever interviewed who said their parents did tell them, yeah. like, we really want you to be a doctor or something yeah. like that, seemed to have no trouble once they realized that, that they didn't want to do that, it wasn't going to work mm-hmm. out. Kind of coming to see that, no, I, I want to be a journalist. I want mm-hmm. to do some mm-hmm. other thing. And could then you know, explain to mom and dad, I want to 
I found my passion. It's it was something, something concrete. Potential such a baggy. Yeah, well, idea. Con- the concrete thing turned out to be somewhat easier to deal with. Yeah, yeah. Right? it was on the table in a sense. What the expectation was, and then if it didn't work out for whatever reason, or you just didn't want it go that way, then 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 somehow you had to kind of language and ability to just express it back to them and mm-hmm. say, hey, you know, look, I take some science classes and really like it. Here's what I like mm-hmm. instead, right? And at least in this day and age, it doesn't seem that parents were kind of easy with that. Yeah. And they would go, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no one reported that, you know, if, if there was some initial disappointment or something, that it was a it was some great burden. I something. wanted to be an architect, but they insisted on me taking the MCAT anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that used to happen. But <laughs> yeah, yeah, right, exactly. <laughs> the, the, parents weren't coercive about it, yeah. in fact. Um, but, but there was something about the fact that it was kind of clear to them well, the language of potential uh, was harder to deal with, and, and kids would because there is no there is no objective standard there. How do you know whether you're doing well? How do you know if you're living? You know, as I said recently in an interview, there's there's no blood test for potential. Right. So how do you know when you're living up to it or not? And what it does, what it encourages, is a kind of of a kind of you know. A constant optimizing of yourself, a constant striving, right? You know, kind of what have you done for me today? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, what have so, you done? You, you're, what you say to yourself? You say to yourself, self, what have you done for me today? It's a very, it's a very circular, inward, continual, right. churning, self-referential question. Well, and you're, but then you're also comparing yourself. Yeah. So, in social media, I think has come to play an yeah. important role in that kind of almost almost minute-by-minute minute, uh, monitoring of your, your performance but in, against I, others. I, but I should say, in your way of seeing it, social media came along at the right time to address an already existing cultural direction. Well, yeah, we've had social media about 10 years. Yeah, it's yeah, not that long. Was, no, yeah, this was going on before that. Yeah. It added a new way, um, because again, if you're living up to your potential, let's say if, if I ask myself, am I living, what, how would I know? I would compare myself to yeah. somebody else, some we, reference group. So people were always doing that. You're yeah. using a reference group to determine well, how you're doing. And I think social media had kind of intensified that and, and made it worse, well, at least in the sense that each person is not just presenting themselves, they're airbrushing themselves. Yeah, well, think about, I mean, Facebook, after all, was supposed to be the Harvard Facebook. It was the Harvard class yep. was going to be online so that everyone could see the other people there at Harvard. Uh, that's right. how it started. In fact, when I first, um, I first had a, uh, had a student write about Facebook, um, this is years ago, um, UVA was one of the elite, was one of the few campuses that had Facebook because mm-hmm. it was only for elite schools. Right. Yeah. Right. It wasn't yeah. going to be for the masses. No. It was just going to be for elites. Yeah, MySpace who, was for the rest of the people. Who would, who would network. <laughs> and, yeah, yeah, exactly. So it was a, it was a very particular, yeah. had a very particular focus. And then, of course, it went um, kind of mainstream. Uh, so, but I think that kind of uh, comparison, but I think, so someone like Liz that you were reading about, her experience, I think, was that she um, felt like she wasn't optimized. She wasn't taking advantage. She was mm-hmm. being too passive. She wasn't, right, even though she's doing all those things. Yes. Right? That's the extraordinary thing is that, you know, um, <laughs> these kids are, like, incredible. Yeah, they are. Right? And yet, somehow, 
It's not enough. They feel it's like not enough. They and feel like failures, even as they are co-editors of the literary magazine and right, right. tutoring and doing doing things that you know. I don't know about you, Joe. Probably you did all those things, but I never would have imagined doing them no, as an no, undergraduate. No, no, right? no, no. We I did was paying or, my own. I or we did, or we did one of them. We did one. <laughs> I and worked felt, at a gas station. Yeah, in we we did one of them and felt really satisfied with ourselves. Oh, so yeah. you were you, yeah. optimizing is one of what you refer to as a regime of moral goods. So optimizing, you never can rest. Second is instrumental. What do you mean by that? Is a, how is instrumental a moral good? Well. Uh, instrumentalizing or making so the, the point of being um, smart the, the point of being all these kind of normative things seems to be to kind of increase your human capital or mm -hmm. to, to maximize your 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 value so to speak mm -hmm. um, and not just I don't mean that just in an economic sense yeah um, but in terms of a kind of um, demonstrating that you're a certain kind of person, um, and so, so it's it's very, um, uh, it's very self-conscious. Yeah. Um, so you would, uh, you know, say you you go to a party, um, and you don't just go to the party and enjoy it. You go and then you also take photographs of yourself at the party Yes. so that you can post them online and let everyone know that you were at that party. Yeah. Um, and you also have to perform at that party to reflect the self that you believe that you should have. I mean, you have to be outgoing and not. you certainly can't be awkward at the party. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, so. so it's... Um, um, uh, so it seemed to like each of the ways of sort of being a person, what, there was an effort to, um, to kind of, um, uh, to, to kind of use them. I, I, a resume maybe is the best way to describe that, but, mm -hmm. but something that, and a kind of an account of yourself um, that would show all of your accomplishments. And mm -hmm. so you, you were, so there's always one eye on, on, what, why am I here, mm -hmm. and how does this translate into an accomplishment? Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I had a student, this is several years ago, and she asked me to write a, a letter for her for a very prestigious kind of summer medical internship. Mm -hmm. I forget, just a small number from the OUS, get these. And uh, so f in order to write the letter, she gave me the her letter to mm -hmm. that program and then she gave me her resume this is a 20 year old student mm -hmm. it was four single space pages of accomplishments yeah that began about the seventh grade yeah um and it seemed pretty clear i mean this is, and this is a bit of an extreme example of that kind of instrumentalizing yeah uh but you you read it and you're reading down the list and it's incredible. Mm -hmm. I mean, these like national achievements mm -hmm. and and uh, as a, as just a young person, you know, I <laughs> I didn't have any achievements. <laughs> 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 You know, I was a, a I was a mediocre football player, <laughs> a mediocre basketball player. Yeah. You know, etc. And, and this wasn't, you know, her grade point. It was, it was. No, these are like extracurricular activities and things like that. And it went on for pages, and um, but.
But it, it, anyway, the, the, what it was an extreme example, I think, of is where each activity of your life is is being conducted with an eye to it being an accomplishment that could be put down on paper, mm -hmm. that it would that it would register as an accomplishment. So you were a, a kind of extreme case of this kind of building of a kind of resume that then that that in some ways you you document your greatness. This is the, what you refer. This is sort of the individualistic moral good. This is oh hyper individualistic, hyper, hyper individualistic. Right. Yeah, yeah. This is because everything that you do is for you. And an expression of yourself, right? And right, that, and I think that's what I'm trying to get by a kind of instrumentalizing yeah. to, to, to advance your own, your own kind of human capital, your own career, so to speak. Um, though again, um, sometimes people talk about this as though this is all about money. Mm -hmm. um, but it's, you know, why don't you think it's just about money? Well, because when you talk with kids young people about this kind of thing, um, a lot of this seems remarkably disconnected mm. from like the future, like mm. even about grades, right? I interviewed one uh, young woman who in, now in college said great, getting good grades is the most important thing in her life. Mm -hmm. She had a meltdown and she first went on a medication in the 10th grade mm -hmm. when she had a meltdown and on the, by the time the day was over, she was at the doctor's office and had a medication the very same day. That but she, she had the meltdown. It, she had a meltdown when she got a B-plus in a calculus test. Even though, on her account, calculus was actually the first really hard math course she'd ever taken. Um, and she got a B-plus, which doesn't sound that bad. But for her, was catastrophic. Now, you could say, oh, she's got faulty thinking. Yeah. Right? Uh but but it, it wouldn't capture what good grades seem to mean to her, uh -huh. right? Because later in college, she's describing getting good grades as the most important thing of her life. However, when you she said that, on further questioning, you'd think, oh, well, you know, she wants to be a neurosurgeon, right? <laughs> if you want to be a neurosurgeon, you better get A's. Yeah. All A's, all the time, all the way through. And what did she really right? want to be? And n none didn't even know. It, the, the good grades were not connected to some future, you know, for some students they clearly are, especially sure. some of the pre-med students and things like that. There's a real emphasis on getting good grades. But so there was a way in which just being the person, smart, athletic, good looking, mm -hmm. was just a thing in itself, right? It was just, I am the person, mm -hmm. you know, we might have said is the man. Mm -hmm, <laughs> mm -hmm. Now it's... It's gender neutral. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I am the person. And that seemed to be a good in itself that was, um, again, not necessarily calculated um, to positions in, out in the world. I mean, that wasn't, it's not that people aren't aware of that and, and then anticipate success um, and so on going forward. But it wasn't, it wasn't as kind of directly connected as you might. As mm -hmm. I, I would have thought. Yeah. And maybe I had one other thought, which also that Liz really brought up kind of clearly, um, was this distinction between winners and losers. Mm -hmm. um, uh, when Liz says she was a loser, it was almost a kind of ontological right. status. Yeah. And some students were even kind of clearer about that, right? That, that say that their struggles 
seemed to be indicating to them that they were not the kind of person they thought they were. And that they were, as one young woman said, I'm becoming the kind of person I didn't think I was. Mm -hmm. The kind of person who's a barista after graduation. Yeah. Um, And there was a real contempt Mm -hmm. for that, right? And this is the the dark side of the meritocracy, Mm -hmm. right? And people have been warning about this. In fact, the book Meritocracy, which was written in the late 50s, Mm -hmm. when the term is coined, it's a dystopian picture. Oh, my God. And, and it, I thought it was the, we thought it, it was utopia. Well, well, exactly. But the utopian part of it, right, was not the idea that the people shouldn't be allowed to kind of use all their gifts and and so on, and, and yeah. not just use uh, ascribed statuses and things like that, but rather that you get this kind of this sort of sense of superiority. Mm-hmm. The people are in their social location. The poor people are poor because they just don't have any. Abilities, right? And I, right? Have risen in my elite. It's because I'm. I just am the. I'm the person. Which I mean. So we. You've just covered all these five points you make about this. This new. These new more. The new set of moral goods um, in the merit amongst meritoc- the meritocracy that we now experience. One is comparative. We've we've gone over this. You're always comparing yourself. That's the beauty of grades. <laughs> you get to compare yourself to everyone. The horror of grades is that comparison. That's the beauty of Facebook and the horror of Facebook. Um, unforgiving. Uh, that failure must be hidden or adequately accounted for. People are completely unforgiving to themselves. Uh, it must be accounted for. Adequately accounted for. This you suggest, is part of the turn towards medication. Um, Let's tease that apart first. I want to quote you to yourself. Students like Liz recognize the demands of their social environment and often, when talking about their situation, refer to the high pressure and expectations. At the same time, they regard their expectations for themselves as personally determined, arising from within themselves, just the way things are. They do not see themselves as trying to conform to standards determined by anyone else and typically think of their experience as unique. How? What? What? That's just, it's incredible, and yet, of course, this is, rings absolutely, resonates abs- as absolutely true to me from talking to lots of students across the desk. How is this possible? How can they see that? Or fail to see it. Or fail to see it. Yeah, well, maybe maybe I'm just wrong about that. Yeah, I, I don't think you are. <laughs> but I, they, because they see themselves as unencumbered individuals. Yeah. Exactly. And they, they do not see themselves as being encumbered by expectations. They see themselves instead as inter- failures. Their failures are somehow internal to themselves. Their expectations are internal to themselves. This is right. part of then how they mo- you move down towards medicate how they met to thinking in medical terms about their failures. But right. it is right. extraordinary that that is the case. Well, and so here um, a lot of these are what you might call. Um, and I borrow this term from Irving Goffman, although he he used it in a rather more narrow sense of kind of norms of being mm-hmm. or norms of self, what kind of self you're supposed to have. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, in our society, especially with ideas of, of kind of, we, we, of self-invention or of, or of um, uh, 
or of autonomy, um, so on, that we're kind of, right, we're sort of masters mm -hmm. of ourselves. We don't think of our relation to ourself as something that's normatively regulated. Mm -hmm. We think of that as the, that's a free space. Um, and so our, our relations to other things might be normatively regulated, but we don't think of when we're kind of talking to ourselves, so to speak, um, that, that's, that, that that's normatively regulated or even or morally regulated, right? That, 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 um, that our relation to ourself is actually, that we're, when we do that, we're actually doing a kind of ethical thinking mm -hmm. about what it's good to be and good to do. Um, but in the case of, so I think it's very difficult um, for students, even though they're, they're aware that they're in this milieu, obviously, that has various kinds of pressures to it and so on. Um, but, but, but they see that as kind of outside of themselves. Um, and then the way they think about themselves, they think is just they're freely, it's me doing yeah. it. It's mm -hmm. not, you know, it, it's hard to see that as something that's, right? And our whole concept of autonomy, uh, as we use it now, uh, again, a, a kind of self-inventing, it presupposes there's a space, there's a, a normatively empty space, <laughs> right, in which people get to make themselves up, mm -hmm. right? And, of course, this yields this kind of familiar phenomenon of all the hippies, we're all dressed alike. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, all the counterculture, we're just another group of, like, they all looked alike, yeah, right. <laughs> you know, and so on. They're all doing their own thing, yeah, exactly the same way, <laughs> exactly, right? Same because way. you don't think of it that as as as, as normative, right? Yeah. And um, or that you see, well, there's there's something. So, for instance, we asked students about the American Dream uh -huh. in one of the interviews. What they thought about the American Dream, and right, and and everybody said, oh, well, you know, yeah, that's, that's about a white picket fence, and I'm, I don't do that. Thing. We don't do that, but they've got, yeah. but damn it, they've got their own American Dream. <laughs> well, that's just it. <laughs> <laughs> and and it was, what was what was funny was yeah. that all the responses were exactly the same. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> right? they all said, "Oh, I don't do that. Yeah. I'm not materialist. I'm not that. I'm this other thing." And it was like, "Yeah, but they're all the same thing, uh -huh. um, right?" They had as if the, the been, very same attitude toward the American dream, um, as if they've been comparing notes, which they haven't. I don't, I don't think about that. Not directly, but yeah. you're but you're in a milieu that's highly yes. normatively regulated, yeah. right? So when you come into the environment. Right, you're realizing what it means to be a good person in this, and it is a good person. It's not, yes, uh, you know, I, I speak of this in moral terms, but it really is. This is what you're supposed to be, yeah, right. You, this is what you should be, yeah. It's not, it's not just, oh, yeah, there's a dozen options here, and you can pick or choose whichever one you want, yeah, right. It's much more coercive than that, but coercive in a very background sense it, it right? makes, you, want, you want to fit in yeah and, and so okay to fit in you you do this and you look this way and you you know all the young women wear the 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 leggings around so you can show off what a fit body you have sure right and everybody can see it you don't there's no extra pounds and you know and so on and and good grief they're all doing it and so it's like okay so something's very common here very um, shared, um, but I don't, and, and so that, that kind of internalizing of, okay, I need to have a fit body, mm -hmm. right? To fit in here, I need to be, mm -hmm. the, go to the gym and controlling my diet, mm -hmm. and, you know, et cetera, et cetera, all the things that follow with that, um, and so on. And, and I think that's the, uh, 
but 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 the the it, it's 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 an unusual person who can step back from that mm-hmm. and say, oh, I'm, I know I'm just conforming. Yeah. Right. It, you know the, that that kind of distance from from your own experience is actually somewhat rare. People yeah. are usually much more. So the. Yeah. The drive then is to medicalize that condition. So rather than stepping back from the uh, body image, um, you say, "Well, you know, uh, first you try to try to get slim, and you can't do it. And so maybe I should take a pill. Maybe I should have the, my stomach stapled. Or if you can't concentrate, if you get a B plus, maybe you need to improve and enhance your performance because." Everyone thinks in the end there's always a biological solution to this. This is one of your key points, right? Yeah, well, I, I would, but I would phrase it a little okay. bit differently. All right. Um, that is the way I think phenomenologically how you come to this view. Okay. So we'll use the example of grades. Um, so, so students get to college. Um, they have often been very successful in high school. Uh, Although, of course, lots of kids use drugs in high school. Adderall is very common in high school, mm-hmm. too. But, um, but, uh, but for instance, you there's often extra credit. There's ways to get an A in high school yeah. that are often not available to you in college, like extra credit, mm-hmm. right? And going to the teacher mm-hmm. and saying, "Oh, I, you know, what yeah. can I do?" So there's a there's a kind of if you work hard. So it, it, grades in high school seem to increasingly, or at least sometimes, be a reflection of hard. If you put Effort. in the hard work, mm-hmm. you get the grade. You get to college, right? And that normally is not the case. Three hundred people in lecture hall, no time. To, there's no ability to show your repentance. <laughs> well, and or people will come, and I've certainly had students do this and ask, "Well, can I write a paper?" No. And the the answer is no, because I would have to give that opportunity to all the students. And right. I didn't, because we're not doing a paper. Mm-hmm. as right. But what they want to do is change the grade on a test. Sure. Yeah. Um, and so you say no. But again, if you think about this as, I'm, I'm supposed to be a certain kind of person. Mm-hmm. And does this B grade indicate to me some kind of real failure? Or that I'm not, in a sense, who I thought I am? Uh, again, I remember one uh, student I interviewed, and she said, I just want to feel special again. She had been in the gifted program since like the fourth grade. Mm-hmm. And of course, as she went through, right, and was always kind of the brightest student, but by the time she gets to the elite college, mm-hmm. they've all been in the gifted program yeah. since the fourth grade, right? And now she was struggling, um, right? And this wasn't just a... Again, this wasn't like faulty thinking. Something is going wrong in her world that really matters to her. And she doesn't know how to explain it. Like, how do I account for the fact that I'm now not, you know, a top student? Um, I I heard the the University of Virginia president a few years ago bragging about how 90-plus percent of the incoming class of freshmen at the university, first years at the university, had graduated in the top 10% of their high school class. Mm -hmm. So I thought, wow, but only 10% get a leave still in the top 10% of their class, right? Everybody else is going to be some downward mobility. Yes. uh, Right, and so on. And and again, for some, this can be really very difficult to handle. And, And then if you said, well, what's going wrong? 
right? If I've been told I'm awesome, brilliant, my life is going to go a certain way, mm -hmm. uh, right? Because I'm going to go far, you know, and so on. And now, now I'm amidst a lot of other students who are, you know, really bright and, and you know, and so on. I'm, I'm, you know, this is bringing on a certain kind of crisis. And then how do you explain it? How mm -hmm. do I explain that I'm not doing, doing as well as I can? And that's where the medical emerges as a kind of explanation for, sure. for failure experiences yeah. or struggles, right? Or that I'm not very good at the party. I'm not smooth. I just don't seem to be as cool as other people. Mm -hmm. Maybe I have a disorder. Here, right? here's, uh, here's Susan. When asked why she began taking Adderall, Susan's response was, because I felt inadequate. She go, too goes to a very competitive public university. When she arrived there, she felt, quote, intimidated by the other girls who are wealthier than me. I felt that I needed a competitive edge to measure up to them. She adds, Adderall boosts your metabolism. So it helped me lose weight. So it helped me to compete with other girls in non-academic ways. I feel that it makes me everything, uh, insert name of the college, girls should be. And the specific event that triggered her was using the drug was a math test. I felt I couldn't remember anything. I felt so anxious, like I couldn't handle it or couldn't do it. I mean, I studied. I just felt like I couldn't do it by myself. I've always had problems with math, so I knew I wasn't going to change overnight, and I needed to change it overnight. So she stole the bottle, a large bottle from her mother, who takes the drug by prescription. Um, you can always, of course, the, the, I wish I could track the price of Adderall being sold in the library is, you know, you could, of course, you would be able to know when finals were coming or when, if you don't know what week midterms is, it's, it's, you can tell by the people who are selling Adderall. Um, but it makes things easier. Adderall makes, you quote someone else in a different uh, paper saying Adderall is the drug for winners. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Adderall is for winners. You should put, print that out and put it on a banner or something like that. Right, right. Well, in, in, in that context, it yeah. means it's for it helps, the, the student who said it said, it helps you do what you're supposed to do. Uh -huh. How can it be bad? Right. Right? Exactly. The, the, the you know, bad drugs, you know, yeah. meth or something, those are for losers. Yeah. Right? Because they're, they're, you know, to just get high or yeah, something yeah. like that. So the kid is, is saying, well, I don't use it to get well, high. Well, that was the reason why people took cocaine in the 80s was to be a winner. I guess the things change. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> but it was, you know... One of the ways that students would justify the use of a prescription drug without a prescription. Yeah, was, sure. Well, it, it's helping me do what I'm supposed to do, so how can that be bad? Right. And as far as I can tell, the institution itself doesn't hold a different view of it. No. Students are never warned off doing this. More than 20% of the UVA students do this. Mm -hmm. take, take stimulant medications without a prescription, and yet the university itself never addresses this issue. You know, each of those is actually a felony. I, I would be, it's a felony I would be, to possess a prescription drug, right? Yeah. Or to give it away or to sell it and so on. If this and yet was, they're obsessed about drinking. If this was Vicodin, it would be a different thing. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. But, so I think the university itself seems to have that view that, well... It's, it's enhancing, this it's can enhancing help performance. You, yeah, this can help you do better. Yeah. Because we're just as invested in your performance as you are. 
right? And we're constantly touting what our students, how they achieve. If there is a college that, that is a concern about that, I would be ha- fascinated to find out in an email to admin at historicallythinking.org. Because, no, it would be really, it would be yeah. really uh, yeah. fascinating to find out if there is. I would think maybe a religious school or somebody who finds that kind of behavior problematic yeah. in its own terms. But otherwise, um, you know, at least our institution, I gave a talk over at the, our um, counseling and student services, and the, the psychologist who invited me invited people from the central administration, and there were some there, because um, he wanted them to put the, get this on their radar screen. Mm-hmm. It was like, you know, this is a scandal that our students are doing this. Well, the, the university, <laughs> they're coming for us now. Uh, um, where, do, where does this leave us? I mean, where, this is not a happy conversation, um, because... It seems that we're trapped in the iron cage of meritocracy. Um, to question, I think what that anecdote demonstrates, by the way, is that to question the meritocracy is to question the presuppositions of modern higher education. A lot of them. Don't take the Adderall, do worse on your test. What? <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, right, right. Well, it's worth observing, by the way, that the Adderall doesn't. No, it doesn't. It isn't nearly as effective as people <laughs> studying actually works a lot better. Well, and when they've done controlled tri- yeah. trials, it, it doesn't seem. No. You know, it has a kind of. It keeps you up all night, yeah. so it has certain short-term effects. Uh, and so on, but it's not quite as magical. Well, as, the, pl- the placebo effect, no as, doubt, is as, a thing there, yeah, but still, in, in uh, people. You know, then um, some student I've interviewed, it, it was kind of, it helped. It, they really experienced a change for a while, mm-hmm. and then they seemed to have kind of acclimated to it. And then, it's mm-hmm. like, oh, well, yeah, maybe it, actually, maybe it didn't really change that much after all. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So I don't know if that's placebo effect or what, but it yeah. does seem like they're, you know, they're they're, I would say almost to a person, they're at some point kind of disappointed that whatever they hoped it was going to do for them doesn't quite do all those things. It, it, right? so doesn't, the drugs are a little oversold in that, mm-hmm. in that regard. It doesn't, it doesn't transform them into the person that they want to be. No, right, right. Um, and uh, Or make you, you know, we sometimes refer to them as smart drugs. Yeah. Uh, but it, it doesn't change your IQ. I mean, you, you, are, you are what you are and... and um, so, you know, it can give some help, brief enhancement and things like that. And, and students kind of swear by it. Some of them do, but, but not, not um, but again, some that qualify that with, yeah, but it doesn't make that much difference or the grades didn't really improve very much mm-hmm. after all. Um, uh, and so on. You asked about where we go from Yeah, there. I mean, we're, I, mean I, 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 I presume that the people listening to this are either parents or professors. So um, it's really hard to give, uh, it, it, this is really hard to come up with a, a happy five-minute news you can use segment. Yeah. Right, um, but right. I think realizing that the problem is bigger is the first step, is uh, the first right. step along this tr- process. Right, right. Well, I, I guess I'll say two things. Um, one is, um, I think it actually helps for to the degree that that young people are made aware 
um, of these norms, that they are norms, mm -hmm. that they're not coming out of you, they're actually coming out of your environment, mm -hmm. yeah. um, and so on. And so, you know, a certain kind of sociology has always thought it be at least a little bit liberating to, to put a little more distance between you and the society you live in, mm -hmm. or give you a little more freedom. And, and certainly a liberal education should be always doing that. Yeah. Right. Learning from the past, other ways of living, other norms mm -hmm. uh, under which people have lived. Which brings one of my favorite quotes about you know history or the study of history is not to explain the past to the present, but to make the present seem strange. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I would think literature. Yeah, it does the, the same thing. The whole study of the of the long the Western tradition and so on, um, anthropology. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah. I, I was an undergraduate anthropology major. You know, other fields, other grasshoppers, right? And there was just <laughs> other ways of doing things. And, and that gives a certain, I, 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 that kind of distance, it seems to me, is what a liberal, part of what a liberal That requires a teaching it that, um, as something other than a subject. Really ought to do. The other thing, two, the two things I wanted to say about it, though, were, one was I say to students, um, cultivate a different morality. <laughs> Rather than I said, I'm not aware of anyone um, being depressed because they were too kind Mm -hmm. or too generous, or too humble, or too giving, right? Um, but, because so they're, but because they're comparative and instrumental and et cetera. Yeah, and the virtues, yeah. the, the classic virtues, are none of those things, yeah. right? They're, they're all actually social, forms of social transaction, if you will. You're kind to someone. Mm -hmm. You're generous to someone. You're compassionate to others. You're right? wise. Are, you're actually wise for others, not for yourself. Yeah, and they don't go on a resume because you don't tout them. <laughs> That's the other thing about a, a virtue is, if you're going around touting it, then it's not really a virtue. <laughs> well, if it's not on the resume, then it doesn't exist. <laughs> so uh, now, again, in the tough and rumble real world, right? Yeah. That's usually seen to be some kind of bad advice. But, but you know, think about it. If you, in you might, fact, cultivate, you know, there are other ways to live. Besides these, so that was one thought. The the other one I wanted to say, which I think won't be a part of this book I'm trying to write, because you know, if you write a book, you have to have a, it has to end on some yeah. some positive note. Yeah. And uh, and it's it's not going to be here are the ten bullet points. <laughs> so, <laughs> and this was something like cultivating a kind of engagement with the real world. Yeah. And uh, uh, so you know, I'm old enough to remember a very different experience. I grew up in a kind of working class family. Uh, all the parents worked for John Deere, the tractor maker. Um, and uh, so I was like an altar boy. I was a paper boy. Um, you know, uh, I was never a scout, but, they, you know, kids were members of scouts uh, and so on. And each of these were ways in which you, as a kid, were, you know, part of, in some sense, of a kind of traditional practice um, that would, but it was regulated by adults, mm -hmm. um, and and the standards were quite clear, right? You you didn't they they weren't you didn't get a fudge them, um, and parents weren't really involved. This wasn't mediated through parents. When I did my paper route, mm -hmm. I just got up myself and went and did my paper route every day. Um, and if you didn't deliver the papers by a certain time, people would call. Yeah, and you'd get called in, and I did once. I got called in, and there's a guy sitting there who's not telling me I'm awesome. He's not smiling. He's not anything. He wants to know why it was late. Right? Mm -hmm. And I told him, I couldn't, the papers were too heavy. It was a Sunday. And I couldn't physically carry them. 
right? And I had a long way to walk, and I ended up getting a red wagon. Yeah. And I would, on, on the weekdays, I could carry them because yeah. they were thin, but on Sundays with all the ads, they were heavy. I couldn't carry them. But those were experiences, I think, of, of learning a certain kind of self-confidence that you could do things in the world um, that I think were very... Um, gave a sense of agency um, and so on um, that I think now um, young people often don't have. Um, they're often in environments where all of this comparison and so on is going on, but it's not really against objective standards. It's against each other, say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. right? And they don't really have any confidence in themselves, um, or they're you know they don't really hold jobs that have bosses, right? Who kind of you have to kind of bend to their will, right? Boss says, "Okay, now you go clean the that's very the latrines." Very dependent upon class now. I would it seems to me that, but yeah. in an interesting way is that, uh, yeah. But at the at certainly not at very high achieving research one universities, you're not you'll find fewer and fewer undergraduates who have actually had a boss. Which right. Is right. Very yeah. Yeah. And even internships and so on turn yeah. off to be very soft environments yes. and so on. I do think that there's something about gaining a certain kind of self-confidence that I think of as building a kind of resilience against the disappointments and struggles mm -hmm. of, of life. And I would think it would actually be far better preparation for the real job market because mm -hmm. there's a real disconnect between all of this meritocracy in college and that job market out there, mm -hmm. right, where we're conforming. I mean, the students are great at conforming. Yes, but the job market out there doesn't really reward conformity in the same way, right? No. It's actually going to expect you to be far more kind of fluid and, and, and have initiative and so on. Then, you know, school is, you know, it's very homogenous, mm -hmm. right? And, um, and the students are great at conforming, um, you know, because that's, you know, to get the good grade. You know, when you focus just on the grade... That's that's like a conformist thing. <laughs> they can tune out just about everything a professor says, other than that which is required to get an A. Yeah, and you know I've had students complain because I didn't follow my own syllabus closely enough. Oh, I know that's right. As though someone else wrote the syllabus, and I, I was I'm being held accountable to my own I, syllabus, I, and I'm like, I, well, you know, I, this is like a guideline. I started to put at the beginning, this is not a contract; this is a syllabus. <laughs> exactly. And I made it. Right? <laughs> I'm not answerable to anyone else for this syllabus. I just made it up, and I'm asking you to, you know, we're going to follow this as a kind of guideline. But it was that, the point was just that, that kind of, you know, I want to know exactly what I need to know to, yeah. to do the right. And that kind of behavior, I don't think, is actually very good preparation for the real the job market that people will face when they go out of college, right, where it's going to require a lot more flexibility. And I think a kind of sense of your own agency, like mm -hmm. I can make stuff happen, I can get things done. And I think you learn that in part by being in situations where it's, there, where there are somewhat inflexible standards going on that you have to kind of live up to. Um, and there are certain kind of traditional practices. Like being a paper boy was a kind of traditional practice um, that really challenged, was very challenging. Um, and I think that was a good... It, it gives you a sense that what you can do and can't do and right, that you're good at and so on um, that I do think is helpful then when you, you get into these situations um, and are not quite so captivated by them and get a, get a kind of distance on them. Um, 
uh, anyway, so that that's my my you know my hopeful <laughs> my hopeful ending. My guest today on Historically Thinking has been Joseph Davis. Uh, his most recent book is an edited volume called "To Fix or to Heal." Is that the that's the most recent one, right? And next year you're coming out with another. Is that going to come out from Chicago next year? Yeah, 2019. And what's the what's the working title for that? What's that going to be? Well, the title, which is no one likes, is going to change, but it's still called <laughs> After Psychology. After, that's provocative. Biology, suffering, and the quest for self mastery. Okay, After Psychology. Well, so probably the subtitle will colon Biology. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. So the, that, the, the subtitle will remain Biology. Suffering and the quest for self mastery, which is related to a lot of the stuff, somewhat related to a lot of stuff that we're talking yeah, about right, yeah, now, right now. Yeah, exactly. Well, Joe, thanks very much. Exactly. You're welcome. Thank you, Ben. For more historical thinking, go to our Facebook page where you can comment on today's program and suggest ideas for programs to come. Please subscribe to us on Apple iTunes. And if you like what you've heard, please, please leave a review so that others can find us. Our program's editor is John Ruddat. I'm your host, Al Zambone. Talk to you next week.